morning, church. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for your church, redeemed by the blood of your Son, whom you gave to the world. We praise you for his work. We praise you for his coming and his kindness and mercies to redeem a people like us for himself, to be a treasured possession unto you, that we might adore you and love you and submit to you and enjoy you and glorify you forever. Father, I pray that our love would grow and be renewed for your church the way that you love her. And this we need your help for, to change our hearts and renew our minds, to think your thoughts after you, and to live your, the life our Savior lived after him who gave himself up for his bride. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a long time ago, I didn't realize this, many of you, how many of you were not here in 2014? Quite a few, really. Um, I was looking back at some old notes because we're spending the year on the church, and it was back in 2014, actually, and I had not realized that it was also the same time that this short three weeks we did on, you know, why I love the church and you should too, was also at the same time when we were moving from the warehouse to the YMCA. I hadn't remembered that uh, piece of the equation, and 
Um, I also had not remembered that it just doesn't seem like it was back in 2014 that I did this, you know? Maybe five years ago. I would have taken 2016, you know? I guess when you hit 40, you know, it's just, it can't be as long ago as it seems like it was. <laughs> or it can't be as long ago as it actually was. And um, it was also in the context of that right at Christmas previous to that, 2013 at Christmas was when our elders stepped in to shut down our church. And so I think on my heart at the time when I was thinking about us moving forward as a church, we were in kind of a little bit of a tough spot then, um, sort, of a self, sort of self-imposed in some ways, but in other ways not so much. And uh, we were making the move and and we had asked the church, and I would do this a little differently if I could do it again, but we had asked the church to give for a little bit extra for a year and make the move to the Y and just kind of see, see if we could make it. That was kind of the nature of things back then. And, um, but I, I, I think probably one of the reasons that drove me to want to look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and, and, and this is going to be a little in rewind form, you know, I'm not going to preach a whole, I'm not going to preach three messages on this again. But I do think it's important, especially as we think about everything we're going to be talking about as a church and have been up to this point. Um, but I think what I was thinking about is because our elders from Harvest in Chicago had wanted to shut down the church, eventually that whole conversation just ended with, we're not doing that unless it's a loving thing to do to the church. That was, that, was the, that was the summary of that, at the end of that conversation. We're not doing that unless it's a loving thing to do to Christ's bride. And of course, you know. Men in positions like that don't do a lot that is loving to Christ's bride. They don't do a lot that's loving to Christ's bride. To them, to them, you know, we just needed a new sugar mama. You know, to them, what we really just needed, the way to think about the bride of Christ was just to think, let's go, what we really need to do is, is go find a, a gold digger. And that's about the extent of the love of Christ's bride that men in these kind of positions have. And, and so coming out of that, kind of walking through the experience of that and the, just being perplexed by it and confused by it and, I don't know, who knows, depressed about it and whatever else I was experiencing in that time. Out of that came the thought uh, and, and the emphasis that I wanted to share with our church, which was... Um, why I love the church and you should too. And it's the easiest thing in the world and the most natural thing in the world to not love the church. It's just natural. The easiest thing in the world to do is to not love the church. To do everything imaginable, everything imaginable to criticize her and to tear her down and to destroy her and I and in into I don't know declare everything she's doing is evil 
you know? If you would listen to the culture today and how they talk about the church, this is how you would think about the church, you know? Everything about the church is bad. And the reason we're in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is because every time you've ever heard this passage ever addressed in any way, shape, or form, it only had to do with human marriage. And um, the truth of the matter is, is the passage is comp- and marriage and this passage are completely undergirded by Christ and his relationship to the church and the church's relationship to Christ. And marriage makes no sense and has no command and no instruction apart from Christ and his relationship to his church. Has nothing. Nothing. And it's important that you realize that it's important that what you don't do is make something that's the shadow the greater substance. And so if you're ever going to understand marriage, and I'll make some comments about marriage because it does help us to understand Christ and his church and the church's relationship to Christ, but it's important that you realize that human marriage is just a shadow. It's a type. It's a picture. You know, and if the sun were not blocked by the curtain up there right now, it would be shining in my face like usual. And I would be casting a shadow. And it would be silly to think that the shadow is the real substance and I'm the not as real thing. And that's what marriage is. Marriage is the, it's the shadow of the substance. And the substance is Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, and the church submits to and obeys him with reverence and awe. And so, um, what I want to just do a little bit this morning, my goal would be, if I can just encourage you and renew in your heart, just in a small way, if God would help us to renew in your heart, in a small way, to love his church then we will have accomplished something. It's important for you to understand that if you want to understand marriage, you need another self-help book like you need a hole in the head. Don't go buy a self-help book. Come to church. Come to church if you want to understand marriage. Be a part of the Bride of Christ if you want to understand marriage. And I want you to understand that the shadow is connected to the substance. And so marriage itself, there's tons of undergirding truth in this passage that summarizes a lot of what Scripture teaches into a condensed form about God's relationship to His church and His church's relationship to Him. And, um, and so it's not a marriage sermon in the way that you typically hear this passage preached in regards to a marriage sermon because what I want you to really focus on is what's being undergirded to make marriage make any sense. To make marriage patterned after the way God designed it to be. Okay? And I want you to think about something. I want you to think about how much pain, as I was writing these sentences, I just 
had tears in my eyes in the chair because I want you to think that when, about when you reject Christ's church, how much pain you are headed for. I mean, you know, when it comes to churches, it's really interesting how oftentimes someone's rejection of the church goes hand in hand with their rejection of their marriage. I don't really want to go down that train of thought right now at the moment, but I just want you to think about how much pain you're headed for if you come up with all kinds of reasons to reject Christ's church and to despise her. If you think Christ will take lightly you despising his bride and that there will be no reaping what you have sown. I want you to think about something else. What is a wedding day all about, you know? Think about the details of wedding day. What's happening? Did you ever go to a wedding where, you know, the bride showed up like she had the worst hair day of her life? And, you know, the groom came in disheveled, you know, like he got attacked by three dogs on the way to the wedding ceremony and his clothes were ripped and torn. And did you ever show up at a wedding day and it was any such thing? No, because what's the goal on wedding day? Uh, the goal is to get everything perfect, Right? The goal is to get everything perfect. I mean, remember the day. Every, everyone is scrambling around to ensure the day's perfection. The whole bridal party is, you know, like buzzing around like bees to take care of everything imaginable that needs taken care of for this day to just be a picture of perfection. You know, and then the church is decorated and the prelude music is playing and um, friends and family are all, you know, dressed to the nines and they wander in either about the time the bride is getting ready to walk the aisle or just before because no one ever shows up on time to a wedding and they take their seats just in time for um, that perfect moment you know, well, it used to be that the bride was hidden away somewhere. I don't know what's happened to that. iPhones have killed that idea. You know, taking pictures ahead of time has killed that idea. Um, she used to be hidden away so- somewhere. Why? Because she's taking extra special care to present herself. She, she gets one chance on wedding day in her wedding gown to present herself to her groom and... Every hair is in place. The makeup is perfect. The dress has had who knows how many um, fittings to make sure it fits perfect. And 
she knows she gets one shot, and the groomsmen and the groom enter the front of the wedding hall. The music changes, the congregation stands, the bride comes around the corner, all eyes are on her, and her smile is as wide as the sky. as is the groom's, as he beholds the beauty of his bride, and she begins her walk to him. And then the most shocking thing happens. Someone amongst the congregation of people that day starts shouting at the bride, you are awful. You are dirty. You are are a failure. You are unworthy to wed Him. Someone decides to make it their moment to seek to destroy the bride. And for a groom who loves his bride, he goes to jail that day. (laughs) And I know that the picture seems absurd. The picture seems absurd. But this is lovelessness of a bride. This is lovelessness of a bride. Right? It's why, men, you cannot let your children speak disrespectfully and dishonor your bride. Right? Should be a million conversations in your house. Maybe not a million. Hopefully not a million. The conversation should be clear. No one talks to my bride like that. And what you have to understand in Ephesians 5, that's the whole point. The church is Christ's bride. And the moment we become just the antagonist of Christ's bride as if our one mission is to say everything awful about her. And to abuse her and slander her, to make a mockery of her and a show of her. Do we just think Jesus should be okay with us talking about his bride like that? Now, understand me. I'm all for good reproof and rebuke. And what I'm against is arrogant slander. I mean, I had a conversation with a dear friend and mentor this week that just reminded me how pastors today are completely asleep at the wheel. 
And I have no problem saying that. Right? It's because it's true. And I don't want them to be asleep at the wheel. So that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm against is a reviling of her. A rebellion against her. What does the text say about Christ? What does it say? What does it say about Christ and His love for His church? Look in your Bible if you have one. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. When she was already sanctified and already washed and already cleaned and already perfected? No! As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Now you know, in your marriage, human love wanes in various degrees, in various ways at times. Not every day of marriage feels as full of affection as other days. It will always fall short of the fullness of love because you are two sin-cursed humans. It's a covenant of two sinners. And... You know, you go through seasons. And it's important that you just remember that if I don't feel as in love as I have before, that not everything is bad. I just be normal. But look, with Christ and His bride, He's not like us. His love doesn't ebb and flow. He's not just emotionally... He's not sin-cursed. His love is holy and set apart from the curse of sin. And His love is ever towards His bride, the church. His love never wanes nor fades away. He is as He was when He gave Himself up for her on the cross, His zeal to love His church has never waned, not by a single degree. Christ loved the church. Yes, it is past tense because the mark of Christ's love for His church is and will always be the cross and it always will be a past tense mark in history. But it's not true by some weird implication that because He loved her then on the cross, He does not now. And it's true that what everyone tells you, right, about marriage, they tell you that with time, the only option is for love to grow cold. I've already told you that, you know, your sense of romantic passion and love for your spouse will wane, and that will be normal, and it will go higher and lower, and it will vary. 
But that doesn't mean that love has to grow cold. There's a very big difference between those two things. On the one hand, it might just be a little bit of a lack of emotional self-control. Minimally speaking. On the other hand, it could be considering forsaking your vows. That would be love growing cold. You know, and when I remember when Rachel and I were married, I'm sure this happened to you too, you know, and, and there's something to young love, right? You know, and everyone older is like, we'll just sit back, just watch, you know. And those who love people like that just recognize, well, the veneer, there's going to be a shiny veneer of hopeful expectation that's going to need to kind of be cleaned off, okay? But it doesn't mean love just grows cold, and that's the only option. What if, with faith and the power of God's grace, love actually could grow sweeter with time? Love could grow sweeter with time. And it's the same in the church of Christ and towards Christ Himself. What if the church's love for Christ could grow sweeter with time? What if we would actually look at the world and our experience with a real Christ who's the head of our very real church to see His faithfulness over years, to see His rescuing us from our sins, not just at conversion, but of the sins we've needed to to transform our lives into a greater maturity? Or what if we've seen real promises actually fulfilled in life, both in the history of the church since Christ gave Himself up for her, and in our existence as a church over the last ten and a half years? Why can love not grow sweeter? Not just, and it's not time that does it. You understand. It's not time that does it. It's just a manner of speaking. It's Christ's love for His bride that does it. We love Him because He first loved us and He keeps loving us. And the church returns her loving obedience to Him. Now, is your love towards your Lord growing sweeter with time, church? Is it growing sweeter with time? Because I can assure you that if it is not growing sweeter with time, the problem is not in Christ. The problem is not in a failure in Jesus. It's not in a failure of His providence in your life. It's not in a failure of Him to meet some need that you have. It's in you. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. 
And so we ought to be very careful how we treat her. Many say things like, I can be a Christian without the church. How much sense does it make to say, well, I want you, Lord, but I despise your bride. How much sense does it make to say, I want you, Lord, but I'm the person standing at the wedding day reviling the bride. Spurgeon once commented this, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to the church. You know, and and, and let me just say, it's always at the point of real difficulty. It's where sin is finally going to really be dealt a death blow, and there's going to be some real progress and blessing that's going to ensue, or somebody's just going to go their own way because it's just gotten hard enough. Well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to the church. Now, why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. So Spurgeon asks, are you quite sure about that? You can be a good Christian by disobedience to your Lord's command, as by being obedient. Let me say that again. Well, because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite sure about that? You can be a good Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. What is a brick made for? It's to help build a house. It's of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It's a good-for-nothing brick. So, he continues, you rolling stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life with which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. How could anyone think that they could just revile Christ's church as like a bride on a wedding day and think that somehow they are still maintaining their nice Christianity. How? Trust me. Christ's judgment on such reviling of his church will be far more severe than any man could do to another man reviling a bride on a wedding day. Because Jesus understands way better than we do in the church today that if you don't want the bride of Christ and your life is not given up for her, 
then you don't want me. Because the bride is my body. These are my people. And you would destroy my people? Then I will destroy you. To think that you can live and escape the judgment of God and do nothing but revile Christ's church? Oh my. You better get on your knees and beg for mercy and forgiveness. course, the root of the problem is we just don't want to give ourselves up for Christ's church. Anything we can do to save ourselves, we will do, but we will not give ourselves up for Christ's church. But Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you understand It wasn't when the church just had made a few mistakes. It wasn't just when the church, you know, messed up its processes a little bit. It wasn't just, you know, I don't know, some... Perceived problems. She was a bloody garment of high handed rebellion and lawlessness, and Christ loved her and gave himself up for her. Now, you'll do nice things for a nice man. Will you give yourself up for a bloody rebel? When you're the offended party. It's not just a bloody rebel to anybody when Christ loves her. The church is a bloody rebel against him. And Christ loves her. Those people are selfish and they require so much time. I don't care. Go serve them again. They are Christ's bride. They're not progressing in 
sanctification as fast as they should be. I don't care. Go help them again. You go help them again. church leaders sinned against me. I don't care. Get it right. They'll ask your forgiveness. Forgive and then move on. Kevin DeYoung and Ted Cluck wrote a book many years ago now called Why We Love the Church. And they wrote the general attitude of the day in a, in a Mad Lib. And I just found it helpful to capture the way we generally think about Christ's church. His bride. The institutional church is so, insert pejorative adjective, When I go to church, I feel completely negative emotion. The leadership is totally an adjective you would use to describe Richard Nixon. And the people are a noun that starts with un. The services are an adjective you would use to describe going to the dentist. The music is an adjective you would use to describe singing on Barney. And the whole congregation is choose among passive, comatose, hypocritical, or Rush Limbaugh Republicans. The whole thing makes me medical term. Now, there's a kind of pastoral arrogance that does this with other brides, too, right? It's, it's one thing to reprove, rebuke, and exhort the church and, and churches. It's another thing to be arrogant and criticize other churches because you know how to do everything better. And I loved when, I loved when FX Church sent some other people here to worship with us at Christmas. And um, what Pastor Matt told his church at the time, and uh, he said, I just wanted to send them somewhere that wouldn't try to convince them they were a better bride. You know, I felt like that was a good word of honor to us first, and I was very thankful for that. But that's true. I mean, we have to deal with the evils in the church today, but the goal isn't pastoral arrogance. Frankly, anybody who's arrogant doesn't do a good job helping the church anyways. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The last thing I want to say about this is just, I just want to give an illustration that's pretty inspiring to me in loving the church. 
When uh, you may have heard of Johnny Erickson Tata before, yeah, she was injured in a diving accident when she was 17. She's been quadriplegic ever since. And, um, but a sweet-spirited Christian, just a sweet-spirited Christian for so many decades now. And she's received a lot of attention. But you know who hasn't received much attention? Her husband. Her husband. And I'm always a little scared to use illustrations of people who are still alive, but because who knows what I'm going to find out (laughs) down the road. But, I mean, uh, imagine her husband. She was quadriplegic when he took interest in her. She was quadriplegic when Ken decided he wanted to marry her. So now they've been married for four decades. But can you imagine the reality of what that took? I mean, like, just waking up every night to turn her in the bed. You know? Not to mention the grosser sides of life. You imagine what it took. You know, he's, I'm sure on a lot of days, he was no hero. Can you imagine the kind of tender care he's had to give her for 40 years? Do you realize? His life is entirely given up to care for his wife. Entirely to care for the woman who is his bride. She can't move. You know, he jokes, he jokes that when they were, uh, I think maybe in thinking about dating, getting engaged or married or something, people would ask him, well, why is he always at the gym? He said, well, it's because I have to be able to move her all, all the time. <laughs> you know? I have to lift her and her wheelchair into a vehicle. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, they, they have kind of a sweet laugh about that. But I just think, in so many ways, it's just a sweet illustration. And all of you know you married a sinner. Something worse than being disabled. Something worse than being quadriplegic. And Christ wed his church in the middle of that and gave himself up for her. Now the cynic says, yeah, but it was really just self-interested. It was really just self-interested. There was something in it for him. Because this is how moderns always talk about sacrifice and service. Well, it's really just self-interest. Well, that's, what self, that's what self-interested people always think. Christ giving himself up for his bride was in the interest of his father and in the interest of his church. 
Of course, there was joy set before him, but for crying out loud, he endured the wrath of his Father on that cross. On that tree, he bore the curse of sin for you. He died a death that you deserve to die. He paid the just penalty of an eternal hell that you deserve for you. Self-interest. I have a lot of respect for anyone who keeps loving their bride. Disabled. Sin-cursed. This is Christ who loved His church and gave Himself up for her. This hymn was written by Samuel Stone in 1866. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her and for her life He died. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale against both foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. The church is weak and she is glorious because she is Christ's. Build her up. Build her up by giving your life as Christ has given His life for her. I mean, give everything for her. Give everything for her. You will be blessed. You will be blessed as you love the bride of Christ. Just as He will not take lightly those who refile His bride, He will not forget every good effort that you have given to His church. So do not grow weary in doing good. You will reap great blessing of doing good to the bride of Christ. And if she was worth the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the ongoing purpose of Christ to make her holy, then isn't she worth everything to you also. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Oh God, forgive us. Forgive us for having hearts that revile and are critical and arrogant and slanderous towards Your church. Because we hate the church, the pillar and support of the truth, the very household of God. Forgive us for wanting to just be told things that we already believe and uh, just agree with us. And despising your church, that is the pillar and support of the truth that tells us the truth, that exposes the darkness in our hearts. (coughs) that shines light into evil and sin-wrought enslaved places in us. Forgive us for shunning and reviling 
your bride, Lord Jesus, and may we treasure her. May we love her like you love her. May we give our lives up for her. We give praise to you that apart apart from you and your work on this cross, there would be no church, there would be no redeemed, and there would be no people like us saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We would be loveless and cold, and yet you have given us life and the ability to love your bride. So I pray that we would spend ourselves for her sake, for one another's sake. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.